0: Today's special episode is by returning champion Olivier Robichaud. Olivier is the news editor for Metro, a daily newspaper based in Montreal, Canada. His main specialties are local news, municipal politics, and the law. Olivier has also studied sociolinguistics, specifically the variation of French across time and space. Today's episode is a continuation of his series on the development of the French language. Hi again, Olivia here to talk to you about Old French. Uh, what? Didn't we already cover this? I thought there was already a guest episode about the origins of Old French. Well, yes, that's true. But last time, I was really aiming to answer two specific questions. First, where did French come from? And second, how does one language turn into another language? If you remember that episode, the answers were, one, it came from Latin, and two, it's all political. People stopped referring to the language of the former Roman citizens in Francia as Latin because the people in power didn't recognize it as the classical Latin that they learned for church and government. So they called it several different names, depending on time and place, until they eventually settled on the word français. But now that the narrative of the French history podcast is squarely in the 11th century, all of the murkiness is gone. No one is wondering whether it's still Latin anymore. It clearly isn't, and no one is calling it that. Also, the kings speak the same language as everyone else now. And last but definitely not least, we start to have written records in the vernacular language of France. So the cloud that veiled the passage from Latin to French has been lifted, and now I can actually get into the nitty-gritty. What did Old French sound like? How did it work? And to some degree, I'll get into the forces that propelled some of the change. Now before we start, just one word on my sources. Most of what I'm about to say is taken from webpages associated with Laval University and the Free University of Brussels as well as uh, an online library called LexiLogos. But you have to speak French to read those. Uh, So if you don't, the Wikipedia entry for Old French is fairly well documented, so you can scan the references for interesting reads. Also, I want to take one small step back before I really get into the meat. The last time you heard my voice... I spoke of Latin and French as if there were nothing in between. Well, that's not quite right. I glossed over a big in-between part before we actually start calling it French. And that's where a lot of the changes that I described occurred. So if you want the actual timeline of the passage from Latin to French, it went something like this. Classical Latin during the Roman Republic. Vulgar Latin. From at least the second century onwards, possibly earlier, Gallo Roman from approximately the sixth century to the ninth century, and finally Old French from the late ninth century onwards. Vulgar Latin, or as I sometimes call it, Late Latin, is the term used for the parlance of the common people for most of the time the empire lasted. It's that form of Latin. That was adopted by the Gauls during the 5th and early 6th centuries. It was still recognizable Latin, but with a simpler grammar. That's the period when clergymen were telling priests to t- preach to their flock in a, quote, rustic style. The Latin could still be understood. It was just a bit rustic. The Gallo-Roman period is a transitional period. As the 6th 7th and 8th centuries unfurl, we get hints that the language of the common people becomes less and less intelligible to those who were learning classical Latin. So when Charlemagne talks about the lingua romana rusticam, or the rustic Roman language, as being different from Latin, we are in 814 AD and we are near the end of the Gallo-Roman period. So that brings us to Old French. But uh, before I get there, please allow me to make one small parenthesis to talk about the Cermat de Strasbourg, or the Oaths of Strasbourg. The Oaths are the starting point for any discussion about the origin of the French language. Gary told us about it back in episode 58. Now, as a reminder, in 842 AD, the grandsons of Charlemagne were duking it out, and two of them formed an alliance against the third. One headed a West Francian army composed of the descendants of Roman citizens. The other headed an East Frankian army composed mostly of Germans. Now, each of the grandsons had to read an oath in the language of the other guy's soldiers so that they would all understand what was being pledged. You may have heard that the oath read by King Ludwig to the followers of Charles the Bald is the oldest known document written in French. Which is true, but it also kind of isn't. First, because it's just a little bit too early for that. Linguists classified in the Gallo-Roman period. The main characteristics that will define Old French are not yet determinedly in place at the time of the Oaths of Strasbourg. The second reason is that there were lots of different dialects both in the Gallo-Roman period and in Old French. The dialects in the north of France were very different from the ones in the south, and most scholars agree that the language of Ludwig's Oath is most likely an early dialect of the south. Those dialects would eventually give us Occitan and Catalan, two entirely different languages, while the ones in the north gave us modern French. So, I'm going to put aside the Oaths of Strasbourg for now, but it is so fundamental to the study of linguistics in France that I will come back to it. I've prepared an epilogue where I will read you Ludwig's Oath in English, then in French, then in my best attempt at some approximation of the original Gallo-Roman. So when is the official start of Old French? Most linguists date it to the late 9th century. By then, the North-South divide is clearly visible, and the feudal system is also firmly in place, which means French society becomes hyper-local. This fuels further differentiation into many more dialects, both in the North and in the South. But for the purpose of this podcast episode, I will date it to the start of the reign of Hugh Capet as King of France in 987. Why? Well, first, because it's easy to remember. When the king doesn't speak French, it's not French. When the king does speak French, then it's French. But I also chose that date because I'm doing this from a sociolinguistic point of view. Language and society, and therefore language and politics are not separate. They influence each other. So the arrival of a French-speaking monarch instead of a Frankish monarch confirms a shift in the dynamics between the different languages and dialects spoken in West Francia. Germanic dialects are still spoken, but they're no longer in a position of dominance. Whatever influence Frankish had over Gallo-Roman is a thing of the past. From now on, The history of the French language will, in general, be a history of Paris spreading its speech to the rest of the kingdom. Now, I've mentioned dialects a few times already. France, in the Middle Ages, was a patchwork of dialects. Paris had its dialect, known in French linguistics as Francien or Francian, uh, but no Parisian ever called it that, though. It's just an academic term to refer to the dialect as it existed in the Middle Ages, as opposed to modern French. Uh, but around that, you had Picard, Artois, Angevin, Normand, Chapenois, and other dialects. Those terms are all used in real life, by the way. They're, they're not just academic terms. And all that is just in the North. I'm not even going to talk about the South all that much, because although they are culturally important in this period, the dialects of the South don't evolve into modern French. But keep in mind that most of the literature of this period comes from the South. This is the era of the troubadours and the chansons de geste. Those are specifically Southern French phenomena. They will be exported elsewhere, but that's where they come from. There's also a third group of dialects in the East, but they are really less of a factor for our purposes here in this podcast episode. And also my mom would really get a kick out of hearing a Monty Python reference, so I'm just going to call them the Sir Not Appearing in This Film dialects. If you're having difficulty with the concept of dialects, you're not alone. In fact, most linguists don't use it anymore, but I'm still going to use it because it's fairly common in everyday speech. So in a very general sense, it means both that you recognize the difference between your manner of speech and that of another region, but also that you consider both to be part of a greater whole. And the differences are more than just a question of the accents that differ from England to America to Australia. Two different dialects can be so far apart that people can't communicate anymore. It's hard to find an example that Anglo-Saxon listeners would have come across because most Western states have thoroughly standardized their main national language and pushed regional dialects into obscurity. But have you ever heard a very, very old person from Yorkshire who grew up on a farm? You can find some old clips uh, from the BBC on the internet, but uh, unfortunately I can't plug it into the podcast episode because it would cost me a thousand British pounds to do so. Literally. Literally. A 1,000 British pounds. But go check it out. It's worth a listen. And make sure that you don't just get a young guy with a weird accent. Get an old man using words that don't exist in standard English. Now, the dialects in the north of France are all part of what is generally referred to as the langue d'oil. In the south, linguists refer to the Languedoc. Oil and oeck are two versions of the word, yes. Oil, as you might guess, gave us the modern French word, oui. That's the word that was used in the north. The word, oc was used in the south and is still spelled OC in modern Occitan, though apparently the C is silent now. It's just a simple way of showing that northern dialects shared certain traits amongst each other that were different from the south and vice versa. So why was there a north-south divide? Well, it starts with the Romans. The south of Gaul had been colonized much earlier and was much more thoroughly Romanized. It was more like Rome than it was like Paris. The second reason for that north-south divide is the Franks. They were in the north way longer than they were in the south. In fact, initially most of what is now southern France was part of a Visigothic kingdom. The Visigoths were nowhere near as numerous or as powerful as the Franks and they had very little impact on the language of the Romanized subjects. The Franks, as I said last time, had the largest impact of any Germanic group on a Romance language. They were numerous, powerful, culturally vibrant, and they stuck around for hundreds of years. Some of their words and pronunciations Trickled down into the language of the common people. So finally, we get to the actual substance of the language. What was that Frankish influence? What words and what pronunciations in Old French had been inherited from the Franks? And what else was happening in that language? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. A silent h it's the only silent letter in Latin. It was pronounced during the classical period, but it got simply dropped along the way and spoke in spoken Latin uh, while the spelling stayed the same. There are also h's that were never pronounced and are just a marker to show that the word was originally borrowed from Greek. Well, now the Franks reintroduced the h into the language I mean the real one- the one that we use for the huh sound in words like horse and hello. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be doing a lot of sounds like h, huh, ch, w for the rest of the episode. And I know it really sounds silly, but you just can't get away from sounding silly when explaining linguistics, so bear with me. Um, so there were new Frankish words coming into the language, including words that mean shame, axe, hate, hoe, and helm. Those words, in order, were haunipa, hapia, hatian, hawa, and helm, and they came into French during the Gallo-Roman period, and they became haunita, hapja, hatina, hawa, and helmum. At the time of the narrative, so the 11th century, the H was probably still pronounced, and those words would have possibly been something like honte, hache, haine, hua, and haine. In the last century of Old French, the H became silent again. And today, those words are ont, ash, ein, ou, and om. Now, this seems like a good time to remind all of you that I'm not a researcher or any kind of expert on Old French phonetics. So, if a linguist tells you that my pronunciation sucks, listen to him. He's right. Anyways, Frankish words also brought in both forms of the English th sound, so the sounds that we hear in the words this and thing, the and th. I mentioned Charles and Ludwig a moment ago, so let's use the name of their brother Lothar to illustrate this. The traditional Latin version of Lothar is Clotario. It comes from the same original root as Clothar, that Merovingian king from back in the day. So there's a hard T in the middle, because Latin doesn't have a TH sound, or the. In the German version of the oaths, though, Lothar's name is rendered Lutheren. So how do you think the Gallo-Roman version renders it? Well, that's right. Under Frankish influence, the name got pulled closer to the German version, and it is rendered Luther. So now it's got that voice TH sound, the. But that sound change also affected words that didn't come from Frankish. The Latin ajutare, which means to help frequently, became ayudare in the oaths. So with that the sound, Latin catuna, or each one, became cavuna. Now remember, this is all from the oaths. That's all Gallo-Roman. But the th sounds were still in use at the current point in the narrative. In the 12th and 13th centuries, French would revert back to the regular t and d sounds, but currently they're using the and th. Old French also enhanced a trend that had started late in the Gallo Roman period, and that trend is called palatalization. That's when you add a bit of friction to a hard consonant. So instead of having a regular T sound or a K sound, you start getting T or T. Remember last time when I said that the name of the kingdom was probably pronounced Francia in Charlemagne's day? Well, that's what was going on. Now, fast forward a century or two, and there's more of that. So, some Latin K sounds were turning into T, like I said, others were turning into ch, and the G sound was turning into J in some cases, and some T sounds were becoming Z. So instead of Latin platea for a public space, you get place in Old French. That word is now place. Latin gamba becomes jambe, which today is pronounced jambe. In English, that's your leg. The Frankish word riki for rich became riche in Old French. And in modern French, that's rich. And finally, the word for reason goes from Latin ratio to Old French raison, now pronounced raison. The last consonant I want to talk about is the W. That sound, the W sound, had been going through some weird changes in the last couple centuries and more change was yet to come. Classical Latin didn't have a V sound. All the V's that you see in Latin text, they're all actual U's. It's just that doing a curved line on a stone tablet is really hard. Now in front of a consonant, that U had the U sound, but in front of a vowel, it had a W sound. So, I'm sure you've seen or heard Caesar's famous phrase veni vidi visi, or I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, it was actually pronounced more like waini vidi wiki. Vulgar Latin turned most of those w sounds into v sounds, so the v actually pronounced. The only exception, as far as I'm aware, is after a q. So, Fast forward a couple centuries after Caesar, and those words would have been veni vidi visi. But fast forward again to Gallo-Roman times, and for some reason, possibly under the influence of Frankish, those former Romans are sending a lot of those V's back into W's. But they're doing it in a weird way. They weren't used to using that sound anymore without a consonant before it, like the Q. So they added the slightest hint of a G sound. So it was r Instead of w. you got "W." That sounds a bit weird. So let's take an example. Take the word for wasp. It went from classical Latin, vesparum, to vulgar Latin, vespa, to Gallo-Roman, huespa. And they did the same thing with a whole bunch of words coming in from Frankish. The word for war was wera. In Francia, it replaced the Latin word bellum. But instead of pronouncing wera, the former Romans said wera. Fast forward one more time to the current point in the narrative, and that slight hint of a g becomes a hard, unmistakable g. So guespa was now guespe, and guera became Guerre. Today, those words are pronounced Gaip and guerre By the way, that introduction of Frankish words with a W, it's had an impact on the English language as well. You may or may not know this, but William the Conqueror in, is known in French as Guillaume le Conquérant. Why do we go from William with a W to Guillaume with a G? Well, because William was a Norman. Normandy had been settled by Danish Vikings in the early 900s. Those Vikings adopted the French language, but when they did so, they had no problem with that W sound. There are lots of Ws in Danish, so easy peasy. Which meant that when the Frankish name Wilhelm became popular, the French essentially butchered it with that g sound and many more alterations until it eventually became Guillaume, but not the Normans. They kept that w and they brought it with them when they conquered England in 1066. And the same thing happened with a whole bunch of words wise gardien. Warden in English, well, same thing. Why is guichet wicked again? That G to W shift. Now I want to get to the vowels, but before I do that, please allow me one more digression to talk about the most famous poem written in Old French. And it has to do with the Normans in England. That poem is, of course, the Chanson de Roland, or the Song of Roland. You may have heard of it before, and in fact, Gary mentioned it once or twice already. It recounts a battle in the 8th century, between one of Charlemagne's armies and some Breton rebels. The oldest copy we have is from the 12th century, so not too far off from the current narrative. And given its age, it is considered to be the closest we can get to the original song. But it wasn't written in the dialect of Paris nor in one of the southern dialects of the Troubadours. It was written in that Anglo-Norman dialect that was now in use in the court of England. Anglo-Norman meaning a new dialect that came from the Norman dialect in France, but had now been infused with some English words. Still a French dialect, just a little bit different from the original Norman. If you want to hear what that dialect sounded like, I took a small clip from a reading posted on YouTube. Here's what it is. There's a further link between the Song of Roland and England. There is some controversy as to the date of its composition. The traditional understanding is that it was first composed late in the 11th century. But depending on who you believe, parts of it may have been written down shortly after the actual battle in 778 and then added to and embellished upon as the years went by. That would make the 12th century historian William of Malmesbury look a little bit better, because in his History of the Kings of England, He says that the Song of Roland was sung by William the Conqueror's troops during the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So there you go. And now, the vowels. I won't be able to go through all the changes because the French went all-out multiple personality disorder with the vowels at the current point in Gary's narrative. There were no less than 33 different vowel sounds, which is more than the entire alphabet. Just to give you an idea of how nuts that is, modern French has 16 vowel sounds, English has 20, yes you do, look it up, Latin had only 10, and Spanish has a grand total of 6 vowel sounds. So yeah, 33 is nuts. How did it get that high? With my favorite word in the whole discipline of linguistics, diphthongs. I'm going to use English to illustrate what a diphthong is because English and Latin actually went through very similar processes when it came to this. If you want a definition, a diphthong is a vowel that changes into another vowel as you pronounce it. Take the letter I for example. When you say the name of that letter, I, you start out saying AH and end with E. Try it out and exaggerate it if you don't mind sounding silly. I. I, All those things that you learned in school as being the long form of a vowel, they're all diphthongs. But they didn't used to be. They used to be the same as the short version, just pronounced longer. But when a vowel is pronounced long, it seems to invite a certain kind of modulation. It can easily fall into a diphthong. That's what happened in English. And that's also what happened in Latin, only to a more insane degree. Somehow they managed to go from five long vowels to 16 diphthongs. Those diphthongs disappeared over time, but interestingly some of what I just explained can still be found in traces in the French-speaking parts of Canada. Get a Frenchman from France to tell you the difference between a penny and a stage and he'll say there's none. They're both pronounced sen. But French Canadians like myself, we beg to differ. A penny is un sen, but a stage is un sein. Can you tell the difference? The second word, sein, is longer. It has a long vowel. Now, if I exaggerate my French-Canadian accent, I might call it un that's a diphthong. But it gets even worse. Old French had tripthongs. Now, guess what that word means? Yeah, that's right. It means that there are three vowel sounds interwoven into a single vowel. Now, this does mean that I get to answer a question that I'm sure has been nagging every single one of you who ever attempted to learn French. How the heck does EAU make the sound O? All logic would dictate that the word beau, which means pretty or handsome, would be spelled B-O. But it's actually spelled B-E-A-U. Same with bateau chateau, and other such nonsense that was thrown at you in your intro to French class. Well those O sounds, they used to be tripthongs. I haven't been able to find exactly how they were pronounced, but the best I can make out is that bo used to be something like Biao or Biao. Something close to meow like a cat, but with a B instead of an M. Now 33 vowels is a distinct anomaly among European languages. So, obviously, it couldn't stick around too long. And those tripthongs and diphthongs started to disappear in the 13th century, which is even before the end of the Old French period. That covers the vowels and that covers phonetics. Now, in terms of grammar, I covered most of what I can easily explain back in my first guest appearance, and that stuff is all still relevant here, so I won't go over it again. The rest of it is too dense for people who aren't already well-versed in Classical Latin, and I am not well-versed in Classical Latin. Plus, who wants to listen to a podcast about grammar? So I'll just leave it at that. Now, back to Gary for the last words. And if you stick around just a little bit longer, I'll have that epilogue with the Oaths of Strasbourg. See you in a bit. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Epilogue, The Oaths of Strasbourg The Oath of King Ludwig the German For the love of God and Christendom, and our joint salvation, from this day onward, to the best of my knowledge and abilities granted by God, I shall protect my brother Charles by any means possible, as one ought to protect one's brother, in so far as he does the same for me, and I shall never willingly enter into a pact with Lothar against the interests of my brother Charles. Now in modern French. And no, I will not apologize for my French-Canadian accent. Pour l'amour de Dieu, et pour le salut commun du peuple chrétien et le nôtre, à partir de ce jour... Autant que Dieu m'en donne le savoir et le pouvoir, je soutiendrai mon frère Charles de mon aide et en toutes choses, comme on doit justement soutenir son frère, à condition qu'il m'en fasse autant, et je ne prendrai jamais aucun arrangement avec Lothaire, qui, à ma volonté, soit au détriment de mon dit frère Charles. And now, in roman Pro Gio Amor et pro Christian Poblo et Nostro Comun Salvamente diste g en in avant, in quant Geo saver et poder mi donat, si salvare Geo sist meon fradre Charlo, yet in ajuda, yet in caduna cosa, si et quum uom son fradra salvar deift, in hoc quid ilm mi atresi facet. Yet afluder Nul plaid nun quam qui meon sest meon charlo in no Well, that's as close to it as I can get. But if you can't get enough of Ludwig's Oath, the Laval University has translated that passage into all stages of French, from classical Latin to vulgar Latin, Gallo-Roman, Old French, middle French and modern French.